Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're new uh, to WAGP or you're live streaming through the internet for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions uh, concerning God's word, maybe some issue you're facing in life and you'd like biblical counsel or a passage of scripture you're studying and you're trying to understand its historical grammatical context. Well, if we can be of help, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Uh, The number locally is 843-525-1859, 525-1859 with the 843 interchange, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. And they'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. It is indeed, Pastor, and we've got a number of questions, so let's get to them. Um, The first one, in chapter 32 of the book of Exodus, Moses asks God to forgive his people for their transgression against him, and if not, to be blotted from the book of God that he's uh, he's written. Uh, I've heard differing vantage points on this. Is this... uh, the book of life. Also were those that were eventually swallowed up by the earth, judged by God, being that they were part of God's original people leaving Egypt. Well, these are great questions. So let me, um, let me turn to that Exodus chapter 32. And let me begin pick up, picking up reading here in uh, verse 28. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3000 men of the people that day, Uh, fell. They died. And Moses said, dedicate yourselves today to the Lord for every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angels shall go before you nevertheless in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. A couple of books that's important to distinguish. Um, I preached a part of a message once uh, years ago. I don't think it's available on tape, but it was um, God's library. And I talked about 
different books that are in God's library. And one of the books, of course, is the book of life, which uh, the book of Revelation and some other references are given in like Psalm 69. But there's also the book of the living, which is a different book, an entirely different book. Uh, It's dealing with those who are living physically. And so Moses is, of course, he he identifies with his people. He loves his people, loves the name and the glory of God. And, and you'll see him on a number of occasions interface with God and, you know, God, the, the, the people around us are going to mock us if you forsake us. And they're going to say that the God of Israel is really not true to himself and so on. And so you'll see this man who has this tremendous passion and love for the glory of God and for the people of Israel. And so Moses is so passionate about this. He's saying, Lord, look, if necessary, you know, take my name out of your book, not the book of uh, life. That's um, that's an eternal book. No one's name can be extinguished from that. The promise in Revelation 3, 5, which is often used out of context to say you can lose your salvation. The verse says just the opposite, that God will never blot one's name out of the book of life. In Revelation 13, Revelation 17 repeats that promise that before the foundation of the world, God wrote the names of those who would be eternally saved in the book of life, the book of the Lamb, as it's also referred to in Scripture. But the book of the living is really an entirely different book, and it deals with God's judgment, God's discipline on his people. And you're really kind of asking a couple of questions here. Because not everyone, like with when the ground opened up and swallowed them up in the rebellion of Korah, that's an entirely different event. And those are unbelievers who are literally swallowed up into hell. But there are other kinds. And how do I know that? Because, again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And the book of Jude gives us New Testament divine commentary on that event. And Korah is viewed as an apostate. And he led a rebellion with apostates. An apostate is someone who's not a true believer. They're a pseudo-believer. And there's coming a great day in the future called the apostasy. There's apostasy in our day and every generation. But there is coming an apostasy of apostasies when those who identify with God's people will be shown that they really are not God's people at all. They will totally defect from the faith. These are not people who had salvation and lost it. These are people who are never truly, genuinely born again. So you have people like that in the rebellion of Korah, but then you have God disciplining his people very harshly. And he does, by the way, the same today. We just don't see it to the same degree. Because remember, at this time in human history, for the most part, God's people were capsulized within the nation of Israel. They were to be a light to the Gentiles, but God dealt specifically with a nation, with a large mass of people. So when you saw God physically remove someone's life, you saw it in a much more dramatic fashion. Now God's people are across the planet in every uh, nation of the world. And so when God removes someone from the book of living, it doesn't seem as dramatic. It's not like, oh, 3,000 people, you know, uh, died in our church today. But there's one over here and one over in this place and one in this city and one in that country. And it still happens. How do I know? Because the New Testament tells me in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30 that some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. Some of you have died. 
And so while we don't see it in the same dramatic way, God is still dealing with his people in love. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And the writer of the Hebrews, of course, is quoting the book of Proverbs. And God's discipline can take many forms, sometimes even a shortened life, which is not something that God takes pleasure in. But if someone is going to persist in disobedience, and so, for instance, uh, when they um, uh, cross through the land of Edom and the people begin to bellyache, it's as recorded in Numbers chapter 21, you know, we hate this food, there's no, not enough water to drink, you know, what's this manna? And so God sent poisonous snakes amongst the people. That's the people of Israel. Those are believers who came out under the blood of the Lamb. And many of those people perished. Uh, they were, their life was cut short physically uh, because of their rebellious hearts. And of course, you know, you can't chide them entirely and say, well, I never would have done that. Well, remember, we are new covenant believers. And as new covenant believers, there are things that we would not do because our heart of stone has been turned into a heart of flesh. So just remember, when you, when you think about God taking people out, context is, is everything. Uh, what is the context of what God is discussing? And the Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Uh, so that's one kind of God, you know, removing someone as described in Deuteronomy 29. Um, and when the earth is swallowed people up and they're brought directly into Hades, that's one kind of uh, physical death that has an eternal judgment. But then there are people who are disciplined and in essence, they're taken home to be with the Lord to use modern new covenant terminology. But that's a great question. I appreciate it. You've got to let scripture interpret scripture And the scripture is clear that concerning the Lamb's book of life, your name can never be removed. But the book of living is really an expression of the discipline of God. And that's an entirely different story. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line. And Katie from Greenville, South Carolina writes, I know you probably get this question a lot. I know you have several great sermons on the topic of drinking that thoroughly explains all the points and biblical arguments that I have listened to before. I'm having a hard time locating them in the Search the Scriptures app, and I have several friends that would love to hear them but can't seem to find them. Could you please tell me which they are? I do have the article that you've posted, and it's also very helpful. Would just like to know which sermons of yours as well. Thank you so much for your ministry. Well, it's a good question. I appreciate your spirit because we're living in a day where more and more evangelicals are very loose about the use of alcohol. So there would be a couple things that I would reference. One is the article you mentioned, and not everyone listening is aware of that. But if you go to searchthescriptures.org, there's a superbly written article in a non-technical way by a brother named Robert Stein. He's still alive. He's in his early 80s. In fact, I was having a discussion last week with a uh, former seminary president, and I asked, is he still living? Yeah, he's still he's still going. He's in his late 80s, but he wrote an article in 1973 that appeared in Christianity Today. They would never publish it in the day that we live in, but back then when it was a conservative Bible-believing magazine, and now it's just a mixed bag of 
of Truth and Error, but it was once a great magazine. Uh, he wrote an article, Robert Stein, called Wine Drinking in the New Testament. There are several other articles that uh, have been written a lot that maybe you need a knowledge of Hebrew or Greek to be able to read. But this is written on a popular level. It's on my website. The thesis of the article is that God forbids both drunkenness and the use of strong drink. And then he goes back by asking what was meant by strong drink in the culture of the New Testament. So, you know, people have asked me, well, do you teach abstinence? And I would say, well, yes and no. Or or more importantly, they'll say, does the Bible teach abstinence? And I would say, well, it all depends what you mean by that. Wine was not forbidden in biblical times when it was mixed with water. And how do I know that? Because I have to go back to the historical context. When God forbids the use of strong drink, uh, he's obviously not forbidding what we today would call strong drink, whiskey and rum and and vodka and the distilled liquors that come almost a thousand years after the Bible was completed. So that was a non-issue. They didn't know how to develop liquid like that with such a high alcohol content. Hadn't been figured out. But when you had fruit that naturally fermented, that's quite another thing. And that's what we call wine. And context is everything. For the Christian who says, well, the wine in the New Testament was not fermented. It's just, it's not, doesn't make sense. Obviously, do not get drunk on wine. But it is true that every reference to wine in the Bible is not necessarily wine that is fermented. And again, context is critical. If you squeeze some grapes and you had a glass of what today we'd call grape juice, they'd call it wine. It was new wine. It hadn't fermented yet, but they used the same term uh, in describing the liquid that came out of the grape before and after it was fermented. They also used the term strong drink that definitively represented a fermented liquor or alcohol or wine. So um, read the article, number one. Number two, I think maybe a good sermon would be the miracle of Cana, John chapter 2. Uh, verses uh, 1 through 12. I preach on the subject of wine there. That would be very helpful for you to listen to that sermon because that's a favorite passage that people love to use. Well, Jesus drank wine and they love to argue that Jesus was, you know, basically endorsing the free use of wine and he's not. And so it's very, very important that you look at that contextually, historically, and so forth. But I think that would be a very useful sermon to you. I also deal with it in my series in the book of Romans, where I deal with the subject of uh, doubtful things, so to speak. And that would be useful from Romans, the 13th chapter. So those would be a couple points of reference that I think might be you might find helpful. All right, very good. Um, We had a question just dictated. It's a difficult situation for our caller whose mother has been in and out of the prison system for years, but now she's being released and looking to uh, someone to take her in. Uh, There has been alcohol and drug abuse, and there have been many relatives who've helped her in the past with nothing but uh, heartache and destruction for doing so. This caller has children in the home and doesn't want them to be subjected to this. As a Christian, Uh, We're to honor our mothers and fathers, but uh, is our first responsibility to the children and to protect them? Uh, The situation is really causing emotional turmoil for the family, and they're looking for what they should do. This is an excellent question, and in some respects, I think you almost answered it for yourself. 
Yes, a man leaves father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one. And God sees the establishment of a new family. Now, when children come along, a family is not established. People say, well, we want to have a family. No, you already have a family. The day you crossed that line at the marriage altar, a new family was established. A family grows when children come into the picture. And yes, you have a responsibility first and foremost for the protection of those children and the stewardship that God has given you. With that said, you are always called to honor your parents, and it's not a qualified honor, only if they're really good people. But that does not mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. So how do you um, intersect this tension of protecting your children and at the same time caring for a mother who has had a history, a repeated history of alcohol? If she were my mother, this is what I would say to her. Mom, we want to help you, and you've had a track record of alcohol abuse, and I don't know, you don't specify whether or not she would claim to be born again. Uh, Certainly, there are people who are born again who can get in trouble with alcohol. There's no question about that. That's why Paul says, walk by the spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh, for the flesh and the spirit are in opposition to one another. And then he says the deeds of the flesh, referring to the sinful nature, they're, they're plain, they're evident. And in that list, he mentions drunkenness, and then he further qualifies where he says, of which I have forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you before, that those who practice such things, those who live this way, those who own this as their lifestyle, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So can a Christian get mixed up in alcohol and even have a a time where they are hooked to it? Yes. But if this is my lifestyle, if this is my life, and I have a pattern of 30 or 40 years of abusing alcohol and drugs, there is very little hope that that person has really met the living God. Now, sometimes, you know, a person comes to faith in Christ and they are delivered from that as they grow in Christ and other people, they, um, you know, they struggle with it. And sometimes the patient of God runs out and he just removes the person. Going back to the original question of the day, he scratches them out of the book of the living because of their rebelliousness. He did that with the Corinthians for drunkenness. That was one of the reasons he, some of them had died. Um, but I would say to your mother, mom, you've had this history of alcohol. We love you. We want to respect you as much as we can, but our help right now is going to be contingent on your willingness. We'll honor you no matter what, but our help is going to be contingent on your willingness to take some steps to put some guards in your life to keep you from abusing alcohol and drugs. So we want to send you, and this is the place I would recommend. It's called the Grace Home for Women. A couple of ministries that I use, one is called the Hebron Home. The other is called the Grace Home. Hebron Home is a ministry for people who are struggling with alcohol and drugs um, for men. The Grace Home is the woman's side of it. They're in two different locations. Hebron is in... Uh, Boone, North Carolina. Grace Home is up at Lake Santee here in South Carolina. The other ministry I recommend is Elam Home. That was one that was started by Jerry Falwell when he was alive. Uh, He grew up in a home where his father was a drunk. 
and he fortunately was able to win him to Christ towards the end of his life. And uh, but he wanted to have a ministry and trying to reach alcohol drunk-related men and, and present the gospel to them and win them to Christ. So the Grace Home would be a 90-day program. It won't cost her a penny. Now, when we send people to these facilities, uh, we often, as a church, Community Bible Church, send a gift, 500 sometimes even $1,000, to make sure that their expenses are covered and also to support these kinds of ministries. Now, there are some secular ministries, many you've heard of, like Charter and so forth, and uh, most of those are 350 to $500 per day. Uh, most people can't swing that. Uh, but many do. I, I, I know someone who even sent their uh, teenage child to one of these ministries and they put a second mortgage in the home and they borrowed 30 some thousand dollars and within a month after the child was back was right back in the soup. Uh, that's sad. That's heartbreaking and obviously discouraging. Uh, they Most of the secular ministries in the country have about a 20 percent success rate. And it's what I call a white knuckle program where they basically teach you, I'm going to white knuckle this. I'm going to do everything through my willpower and other people who might help me to keep from this evil. And it is an evil. Let's call it sin. Don't call it a disease. It's not a disease. Look, if it's a disease, God can't hold me morally responsible. Now, you can disease your body through alcohol, where you become, uh, you know, you, you do damage to your alcohol. In of course, the article just came out last week. Um, CBS promoted it, and it's all across the internet now that there's zero benefit to using alcohol. Uh, it dismissed all the prior studies, and that makes I could have told them without doing that study. Because God warns against the use of strong drink. Forget the distilled liquors. This idea that, you know, a glass of wine a day is good for your health. This new study totally dismisses that. Why do I know that? Because God says don't use strong drink. And so when you go back again to the historical context, the Didash, a second century AD pastoral manual, when you go to the Talmud, a Jewish rabbinical instructional guide, they mixed it four or five parts water to one part wine. Uh, and it was essential in that day to have a uh, wine that purified the water. Otherwise, you'd get sick on the water. So I could have told them God wouldn't have recommended it, and it's not good to your health. But God allowed it to be here. So in that sense, the Bible didn't teach abstinence because they would mix wine with water. Uh, with Lay that aside, I would say to your mom, go to this program for 90 days. Now, it's a spiritually-based program. And they do kind of an interview. It's not a detox program, so someone has to have been off the alcohol for at least 72 hours before they would be received into the program. But it doesn't cost anything, and you can send her there for 90 days. If she says, no, I'm not going there, then what she's really saying is, um, I can handle this problem on my own. And she can't. She needs to learn God's principles if she's born again. If she's not born again, they're going to introduce her to Christ. And if she's not willing to receive Christ, then you can't help her. You can't do anything in the world to help her. And the exposure that you would give your mother to your family should be very, very limited and totally safeguarded and supervised. Um, So, you know, it might be a card. It might be an occasional meal in your home. 
but not alone with your children, and certainly not if she's on the hooch. You know, it just it just can't happen. So that's where I would start with her. And if she doesn't want that help, there's nothing you can do to help her. And within a week, within a month, she'll probably be back in the same spot. So this is actually an ideal framework before she's released to go ahead and see if you can get her signed into the program. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Richard from Hilton Head Island writes, a prominent preacher on WAGP stated, People who receive the mark of the beast can still be saved. His reasoning was Jesus has to have someone to rule over during his thousand-year reign. Pastor, could you respond? Well, obviously, I don't agree with that. I'm not sure who the prominent preacher was. Now, I know John MacArthur back in the 70s made a statement to that effect, and he was in his younger years as a pastor. And I'm sure I've said a few things over the years, and maybe I need to rethink that. Um, but the fact is, is that he doesn't teach that anymore. So I don't know who the prominent preacher was, but I read this in Revelation 20. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead. And on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then, of course, he speaks of the doom of Satan and the false prophet and um, and the devil, and they're all thrown into the lake of fire. And then in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, this great white throne judgment. So you have references like this. These were people who had not received the mark of the beast, and they are described as those whom God redeemed, those whom God saved, those whom God will raise as a part of the first resurrection program. Uh, the rest meaning those who did receive the mark of the beast, along with Satan and the false prophet, all three of them, as verses 7 through 20, 15 indicate, end up in the lake of fire. So who will God reign over? He'll reign over tribulation saints who survive the tribulation period. Jesus said if those days were not cut short, no one could possibly have survived. But the fact is, is that those days will be cut short. God will eventually uh, end them, and uh, he will rescue those who are alive. You know, that text that's often taken out of context, one will be taken, one will be left. One will be taken, one will be left. That's a reference to those who are left here to reign with Messiah on the earth for the thousand years. Those who are taken is not a reference to the rapture in the context. It's a reference to those who are taken away in the judgment of God. But as you read through Revelation, I just preached a sermon. You might want to listen to Revelation 13, and I go through all the beast passages and the Mark passages in that sermon. It's very clear that without exception, when a person takes the mark of the beast. It's an irreversible decision. Just like when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as an act of the will, you made an irreversible decision that can never, ever, ever be changed. Even so, when a person takes the mark of the beast, 
they make an irreversible decision that condemns and damns their soul for an eternity. And so we have free will and we must decide in whom we will choose. But remember, during the uh, time of the Great Tribulation period, there is a preaching that is going on through the 144,000 and people from every tribe, tongue and nation are saved. Now, is everyone saved? Do they make it through the tribulation? No. Uh, those we just read in Revelation 20 who refuse the mark of the beast, most of them are beheaded. Uh, they, they lose their lives. They are eternally uh, secure, but they are cut out of the book of the living, so to speak. Uh, not by God, but because of persecution. Uh, they are, their life is cut short. But will everyone be beheaded? Clearly not. Because there is a preaching of the gospel that goes all the way through the seven years, through the 144,000, in addition, through the two witnesses who preach in the second half of the tribulation period. And so, and then through those who are converted, those who are saved. And God also, if you remember in our study of Revelation, um, in the uh, 12th chapter, he deals with those who flee into the wilderness. So some, some people flee into the wilderness, just as Christ told them to do in the Sermon on the Mount, and they will survive the tribulation period as well. So there'll be a lot of people alive to enter the kingdom, not to mention those who come back with Christ and resurrection bodies, and some will reign over 10 cities and some over five. So there'll be quite a number of people, but during the thousand year reign of Christ, those who enter into their natural bodies, and we'll explain that as we work through the revelation, uh, they will have children and grandchildren and great grandchildren, and the earth will repopulate during that time because people won't live for 70 or 80 years. They'll live potentially a thousand years uh, during that reign of the Messiah. All right, 843 525 1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we've got Bob standing by on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, uh, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Brogan. Good morning. Um, question of Acts. Acts uh, chapter 9, 26, uh, was after the, the incident with letting Saul down to the, Paul down to the basket to escape town. Yes. Uh, to save his life. Yes. In Acts, it says that he went to the disciples uh, and then met up with, a, with Barnabas to see the, the apostles and such. And in Galatians 1, in Galatians 1, 17 and 18, it says he did not go um to Jerusalem, but went straight to Arabia, then back to Damascus, then after three years to Jerusalem. So it's it's kind of confusing. Yeah, so you might want to listen to my yeah you might want to listen to my message on Acts nine because I deal with this very issue. Uh, so if you go to searchthescriptures.org, click on books of the Bible, uh, click on Acts, and then you'll see how I broke up, how many sermons I preached in chapter 9. You're going to look for the sermon that includes verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, for they were afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he'd seen the Lord in the road and how he had talked to them and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. 
Now, in the Galatians passage, it's it's interesting, and again, you know, you've got to bleed the accounts together. It's much like the Gospels. They never contradict one another, but they do complement each other. And so, you know, in, in one Gospel, it says that uh, Peter's cut off someone's ear, and another Gospel, it says the name of the person who's got his ear cut off was a fellow named Malchus, and then Luke uniquely adds, as a physician, as you might think, that Jesus immediately healed the ear. So again, no contradiction, only uh, they, they complement one another. Um, so in the, in the Galatians passage, it says, but when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Um, one of the things that Paul really wants to hammer home, if you remember, uh, in his epistles is that he had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that was unique, that he was not given the gospel through men, but by direct revelation, that God the Holy Spirit um, supernaturally uh, allowed him to have a direct revelation through Jesus Christ. And it came in many portions and in many ways as you read through even the Acts of the Apostles that fills in some of the details um, it, it's kind of interesting to think about, but um, God is sovereign and he wanted to call part, Paul apart and to set him apart in a, a unique and special way. And he made that very, very clear. So here in the Galatians text, um, he's filling in some details uh, that are very, very important. Um, we read here, let me, let me go back just a little bit um, so that we put it in context. In verse 23, it says, when many days had elapsed. So Luke is not specific with a time. He simply says many days. And by the way, if you see the use of many days in the book of Acts, sometimes that will cover months or even years. How do I know? Because Luke being a master historian fills in a lot of the details uh, in terms of chronological details that tell you how long the many days is. He doesn't in every instance, but in a number of instances. Yet we know here from Galatians 1, 17 and 18, that after Paul was converted, uh, between verses 22 and 23 here of Acts 9, he went into the wilderness of Arabia for a period of three years. So God gave Paul a, a, a deliberate, I suppose you could say, compensation of, a, of three-year instruction that all the other guys had. Um, the Lord allowed him between Acts 9, 22, and 23 to have a, a three-year instructional time just like these guys had. And God often does that if you think about it. Um, you know, today it might be seminary for a person who's able to cut three or four years out of their life and... Uh, really sharpen their sword to be effective for the next 30 or 40 years. God certainly did that with uh, Moses, where he had him out in the wilderness and really built into the man's life before he gave him a public ministry. So in Galatians 1, after three years, he comes back to Damascus, 
but only for a short time because Galatians 1 says the Jews plotted to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So from there he goes to Jerusalem, but the Christians can't believe he's genuinely converted. And that's where the account here with Barnabas kicks in. When he comes to Jerusalem, he's trying to associate with the disciples, but they're afraid of him. And I would be too, because remember, this was the guy who was dragging, you know, parents out of homes and putting people in prison and even oversees the execution of the very first martyr in the church. But Barnabas, he takes hold of him. He brings him to the apostles. He describes what happened on the road to Damascus and how he boldly spoke out for the name of Christ. And the apostles agree, and they they give him freedom. And, of course, um, God uh, ends up giving an endorsement. So the, the accounts don't contradict. They, they coincide. Uh, but it is important that this many days phrase you could do, if you have a computer concordance, just type in many days, the book of Acts, and you will see that very often Luke uses that phrase to give a, a summary of time that could be three months, and in one case, at least two years. And in this case, uh, three years. So anyway, good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and a listener dictated their question, uh, they say their best friend is considering becoming a Jehovah's Witness. How should he counsel him as to what they believe and if it is contrary to Bible teaching? Well, it's a it's a great question, and hopefully he wants to make an intelligent decision. Remember, people get into cults usually for one of a couple of reasons. Sometimes because they've heard the truth, they don't like the truth, and they end up believing what's false. And that happens today. It's going to happen in a worldwide way during the coming apostasy. Because men love their sin rather than the light, they end up believing a lie, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, but with that said, let's believe the best here. Let's say he's earnestly seeking God because there are some people who get in, caught up in cults like the Jehovah's Witness because the Jehovah's Witness is the very first group of people to meet him. And they're masters, by the way, of taking Scripture out of context. And remember, their their heresy is really not new. It was dealt with in the third century. Uh, but it, you know, will raise its ugly head from generation to generation and certainly through the Jehovah's Witness. Are they Christians? No. They deny every fundamental critical doctrine of Christianity. Uh, they deny, for instance, the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's utter heresy. You cannot deny that Jesus is God and be counted as a true, genuine believer. Uh, so God's, God's word is very, very clear. So you want to witness to him. And um, so what's the key? Well, one, make sure you can get into a discussion uh, with him where he will listen. Because sometimes if he's already getting engaged with JWs, one of the things they do is they teach you how not to listen. And it's actually written into their training program so that when a Christian begins to bring this up, they'll tell you what you want to be thinking of are these three points that you want to make. 
And so they're really not listening to you. And so sometimes you have to say to your friend, I'll tell you what, I, I want to dialogue with you. And by the way, a Jehovah's Witness actually taught me this. He said to me, um, Carl, they were trained not to listen. And so the most effective thing you can do when you have an opportunity to witness to a Jehovah's Witness is to say, listen, I'll speak to you for 15 minutes without interruption where I'll listen to you if you will listen to me for 15 minutes without interruption. So I would start with the the deity of Christ. Obviously, there's a translation called the New World Translation that the JWs use, but they also use what's called the King James Translation of the Bible. And they will carry both with you. And because why? Because many people say, well, I don't want to see that translation. Show me out of the King James Bible. And so start with the deity of Christ. And if you need help in that, the reference that I would suggest to you would be a book called The Kingdom of the Cults, The Kingdom of the Cults, and it's written by Dr. Walter Martin. It's a superb work uh, that deals with not what people say Jehovah's Witness believe, but it actually teaches precisely what they do believe, and it quotes out of their own documents. And that's really important because it's like, you know, evangelicals sometimes maybe take a shot at a Roman Catholic And they'll say, well, you know, Roman Catholics teach that you can sin all week long and you just go to confession on Saturday afternoon. They they don't actually teach that. So that's a straw man that's been created that you're trying to tear down. And sometimes evangelicals are guilty of doing that with Jehovah's Witness. So you really want to know what do they actually teach. But, you know, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They say the scripture that we use is unreliable, that only the New World Translation ultimately can be trusted. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone. They have a two-tiered system of those who will be saved. And I'll actually be um, covering this some this Sunday because we'll be addressing the 144,000 because it comes up again in, uh, in Revelation chapter 14. And so one group that abuses who these 144,000 are, and even they, as you look at their historical documents, have changed their position. Originally, they said only 144,000 will be saved. And that was attractive to some people because they wanted to be a part of that 144,000. But then when they grew so large, uh, they had to kind of reformulate the doctrine. And this is where Dr. Walt Martin is really good because he shows Here is their original teaching. Here is the original document. And at this point in history, they made this change over here. And they had to reformulate it because it didn't work. So they're not even consistent themselves. So Dr. Walter Martin, the kingdom of the cults. And if your friend is really searching for truth, say, how about if we work through this and we'll go through what the Jehovah's Witness actually teach and what God says in his word. I also have a a pamphlet that we use at Community Bible Church. It's called Spirit of Truth, Spirit of Error. It's certainly not as in-depth as Dr. Walter Martin's book, but it lists what does Jehovah's Witness say about salvation, about sin, about hell. Hell, for instance, they they deny the doctrine of eternal retribution, so forth. Um, And what does the Bible say? So it lists in one column what they teach and then what the Bible teaches in another. But that pamphlet does it not simply with Jehovah's Witness, but seven major groups that are in gross error, like Christian science, Mormonism, and so forth. But Dr. Walter Martin's book, get that, that, that would be the place to start.
All right. Leslie from Beaufort writes, it seems nowadays almost every pastor and even many everyday believers have written a book. Many of them become guest speakers at churches on Sunday morning and mention their book from the pulpit during their message. I'm not against books. I love books, and God has used many of them in my life. I'm also not against guest speakers occasionally at church on Sunday morning. But when authors slash speakers mention their book from the pulpit on Sunday, it seems to me they're using the time where our focus should be on God and his word to advertise their book. It reminds me of Jesus when he went to the temple and overturned the money changers. What are your thoughts on this? Well, there is a delicate balance here in terms of, you know, where there's self-promotion going on versus really wanting to provide resources to God's people. Uh, For instance, um, Ken Ham came to Community Bible Church on one occasion, and he was promoting certain books. Why was he promoting it? To line his own pockets? No, not at all. I've written seven or eight articles now for Answers in Genesis. Rick just sent me one the other day, and uh, one I'd written. Oh, I forgot I wrote that article on postmodernism. But um, uh, nonetheless, he doesn't receive a dime for those books that he promotes. It all goes back to the Answers in Genesis ministry that is used to you know spread the gospel. But is it helpful when he holds up a book and it's a book that's written for children and what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Yeah, I think it's really helpful because children, if they're in the government school system, that whole system of thought is undermined and the Bible is dismissed as false, which is a good reason to abandon the government uh, school system. Or uh, they have friends and other children. Or you've got guys like Tim Keller, who's supposedly a Christian apologist, who says it really is not important to believe how God created the world. And if you want to believe in the process of evolution, theistic evolution, that God used that process, then it's okay. What kind of an apologist is Tim Keller? When his book came out, I would not permit it to be used at Community Bible Church. And I know I took some heat for that, but now he's wavering on other issues like same-sex attraction. And I think, where is this guy going? And listen, the devil is so slick. If he can get you to deny the truthfulness of Genesis chapters 1 through 11, if that's not credible, why believe the rest of the Bible? So we need to teach our children why Genesis 1 through 11 is not myth, but it's history. That it's not parable teaching us some spiritual truth like our cooperative Baptist friends say, but it is actual authority that God did literally create the world in six actual days, not days that were millions of years long or big gaps between the days, but six 24-hour days. That's what the Bible teaches of, of itself. And so when a guy like Ken Ham stands up and says, here's a resource that deals with this particular issue. Here's a resource on how we got the races. Here's a resource on whatever it might be. To me, that's helpful. Now, obviously, I wouldn't want that promoted through the whole service. But if it's done tastefully, it can be very, 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 very helpful. Um, So that's what I, I even wrote a little booklet, How to Prove the Bible is True. And I think I maybe have mentioned it once or twice in a sermon. I don't receive a dime, not one penny, any more than I receive money from Search the Scriptures. Uh, It all goes back into the ministry. 
And so, um, again, uh, it's how it is done. And, yeah, I, I can see where I've been in some settings where it just seems very self-promoting, almost uh, line your pocket. Now, one of the things at Community Bible Church that maybe you're listening, you even attend Community Bible Church, and you've not really paid attention. But, for instance, we never take a love offering. Some ministry comes, we never take a love offering. And oftentimes, uh, groups will come and say, well, we want to come, we just want to take a love offering. So, you know, we don't do love offerings. Why? Because I've seen how love offerings are done, and oftentimes it's a plea for money, and you play on people's emotions. And I'll say, look, if you're going to come, here's how it's going to be done. You know, we may agree on, a, we'll pay you this honorarium, you know, for your ministry to help it be sustained. Not to mention that the whole love offering situation has been abused illegally, uh, where people take in this cash and there's no accountability for the cash, where if a church issues more than $600 to an individual, there's a special form that has to be processed with the IRS. So um, the love offering, so to speak, was a way in which people sometimes collected money tax-free, and it was just illegal um, how it was often done. So I appreciate it. So I, I wouldn't be hard-nosed and say, no, it's always wrong to, to promote. But but there are times when it, it's just it's done in a disgusting manner, and I'm with you on that. Susan has a question relating to a message you gave on June 1st. She writes, I don't understand why God would deceive people with an antichrist if his goal is to bring people to him. Why does he choose to try to confuse people into believing in the antichrist? I just don't understand the whole concept, and it's been bothering me. Well, I appreciate that. And again, it's it's not that God's trying to confuse people. Uh, let Scripture interpret Scripture. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the prophet Ezekiel tells us. Uh, Peter reminds us that God is not willing, not wishing, not desiring any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God's heart is to save people. That's why he sent his son. But on the same hand, God is long-suffering with people. And if a person is going to continue to rebel and to put God off and neglect the truth that is in front of them, their neglect is basically a rejection. And so Jesus speaks in the parable, the sower, I'm reading from Luke 8, verse 12, those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. I was with one of my granddaughters and my son last week, and we were fly fishing in this river. I took a few days off and four days off, and it was good to get away. Um, And so God brought this young Jewish man into our midst, and we had a chance to share the plan of salvation to him and to relate Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning, God, plural, created, singular verb, the heavens and the earth. And he was kind of stirring this up in his mind. How could there be a plural noun for God with a singular verse? And I said, of course, if you read a little bit further in the chapter, God says, let us, not let me, let us make man in our creation. The triunity of God, something that an earlier question came that Jehovah's Witness deny. They say, well, that was God and the angels creating. That's how they get around. The angels don't have any power to create. They're created beings. That's the triunity of God that's being affirmed. 
So he was very open. Another fella came along and um, I asked him at one point in the conversation, I said, by the way, do you go to church anywhere? Have you ever read the Bible or considered the claims of Christ? He said, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it now. I don't ever want to talk to you or anyone about that. And his answer was just kind of so gruff that it kind of took my granddaughter back. And so as we were walking back uh, to the car about a mile away, um, I said to her, you know, Lois, we can't let these things discourage us because Jesus tells us that we're to go out and to sow seed. And he warns us in advance that seed will fall on different kinds of hearts. And one kind of heart that seed falls on sometimes is that of a stony heart. He told us that would happen. And so we can't let that discourage us. Our responsibility is to sow seed. And in the process, we kind of test the waters and we see what the response is, whether or not we should continue. Now, it would be wrong for me to continue because Jesus told me that I am to judge with righteous judgment. And in Matthew's account, when he says, judge not lest you be judged, he then goes on and speaks of a judgment that Christians are to exercise. And God practices what he preaches, where he says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under the feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So when there's an utter rejection of truth, it invites the judgment of God. So when we think of the deluding influence, remember, God just doesn't say, well, I'm sick of these people. This is a long-suffering God who has given man chance after chance after chance. And the scripture reminds us of this lawless one, the Antichrist, who's coming, and his, his coming will be in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive. And it's a verb. They continually over and over and over again did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. And so it's for this reason that God sends on them a deluding influence. It becomes a judgment that they might be condemned with those, you know, who took pleasure over wickedness. Jesus taught the same thing in John chapter 12. Again, we don't see it in a broad scale, wholesale way today, but it happens individually where he reminds people to walk in the light while they have the light. Otherwise, the darkness will overtake them. While you have the light, believe in the light. Why? That you might become a believer, a son of light. But in spite of the evidence that these Pharisees were habitually over and over and over again, ignoring and rejecting, for that reason, God blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. So listen, there's an urgency to respond. There's an urgency to the gospel and neglect of the Bible, neglect of truth ultimately is a decision to reject the truth. God's long suffering but he will not endure in his patience forever. There comes a point when the righteous anger of God is released. And that's really what we're talking about here. Anyway, our time is elapsed, but these are all great questions. Many more that we didn't get to, but Lord willing, we'll have another Bible line in that opportunity. If you have questions, go to searchthescriptures.org. Click on Ask Dr. Berge a Question. And we will get those emailed here in the studio as well. Thanks so much. Have a great day as you walk with Christ.